Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Rebecca. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, You and I talked last week. Uh, We promised not to sort of uh, disclose everything that we were going to talk about today to make sure that it was very conversational and fresh. Um, we just talked about raising kids and stuff. So we've gotten to know a little, get, gotten to know each other a little bit on a personal level. Um, and now we're going to talk fundraising. So, um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, but Rebecca, before we, uh, dive into our topic today, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, don't call me Rebecca. Just oh, call. Oh, I'm sorry. No, only just because now we know each other. I'm Becky. Call you Becky? Okay, Just Becky, nobody right. in the world calls Becky. me Becky. It's actually a great, you know, in LinkedIn, you can find me as Rebecca and anything I write, I put Rebecca. But in okay. real life, I'm just a Becky. And you and you have Becky on the screen here. I'm Becky. Well, Becky, it, welcome to the Fundraising Talent I'm Podcast. I'm super happy to be here. <laughs> so um, I'm super excited to talk about fundraising. And I just want to give you a shout out, Jason, because... 
I know that you like to talk about bold ideas, and I think there might be people who would say having me as a guest is a pretty bold idea. So thank you for being open. Um, I'm an out-of-the-box thinker, and okay. I my current job in philanthropy is um, is doing a lot of deep listening mm-hmm. and getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's where I'm at. Um, I'm not an expert in mm-hmm. any way, shape, or form. I have written no books. I've written no white papers. I am not, uh, I don't have CFRE after my name, and I have never joined AFP. So I'm not your usual guest. Um, but what I do have to share is a perspective. Yeah. And it's, and, you know, it's only mine. It's only based on my personal experience, um, yeah. but but that is my area of expertise. I know what it's like to be me, and I know what it's like to be white and a woman of a certain age and to have done uh, a lot of work in this nonprofit sector for a fairly long time. Well, before we dive into that, so you just told us all the things you're not and what you haven't done, but I have to imagine if you've been in the fundraising space at least as long as I have. And if you've done it successfully, you've raised a hell of a lot of money. So let's at least give you credit for that. Well, to be fair, I have not raised a hell of a lot of money because oh, my, okay, focus, okay. my focus is really hyper-local. So okay. I'm here in New Haven, Connecticut, um, working for really small nonprofits where yeah. six-figure gifts are not really a thing. I'm really good at helping people elevate their game, yeah. uh, to helping them grow major donor lists. Um, sure. So I think I'm good at what I do, but it's on a very small local level. I'm could not... you could you though raise that money? There's, uh, no, it, there's no doubt in my mind you could raise that. Well, money. thank you for that vote of confidence. I think that I could, but that's really yes. not what drives me. I'm really mission driven, and I also really care about where I'm living right now and making an impact here. Okay. Um, so, so I started off. Um, I started off really diving deep into the fundraising world uh, a while ago at a uh-huh. very fancy exclusive um, white-ish private school and my job there was stewardship. So I was, you know, in charge of making sure that all those people who had given six-figure gifts um, got all of their, you know, all of their needs met immediately and got lots of reinforcement uh, reminding them about how special they were, how exceptional they were. Um, and and it, it actually took a toll on me. I actually found it to be draining yeah. and tiresome to constantly be kowtowing to people who were not necessarily the smartest people in the room, but they were the people that had the most resources. Sure. And and I had a little, uh, you know, a little wake-up call. And I thought, you know, here I am sitting in a job where we're working on a $75 million capital campaign in a yeah. city where almost, you know, a, a huge portion of the population is living well below poverty level. Yeah. Maybe I can take my skills 
and do something right in my community. Yeah. So I bailed on that job, which people thought was crazy because it was cushy and, you know, um, I had all the money I could ever want in my budget to spend whatever kind of lavish parties and, you know, no penny was spared. And now I'm suddenly thrown into a very small nonprofit organization doing refugee resettlement here in New Haven. Okay. Yes. And I thought, great, this resonates. Like this mission seems really important and it it and you know, I'm one of those liberal do-gooders who's always <laughs> helping. You know, I'm thinking, oh great, I'm gonna be a helper here. So I did what, you know, what I thought was the right thing to do, which was we hosted a crap ton of house parties. Yeah. So we're, you know, getting all the people who live on the fancy streets to open up their homes and invite all their wealthy friends. And then I would trot out our little refugee to tell their horrific story. Yes. And at the time, I knew I was really good at it, right? I was making, we were bringing in good money. We were elevating the, the you know, the experience for the for the donor and people were feeling connected and they were all the emotional heartstrings were being pulled and dollars were rolling in but it felt so icky it was just cringy and jason was it I, cringy then was it cringy then or it, is it cringy it was, now well, it was cringy then but you know i didn't okay. have i didn't have the language i didn't really yeah. have Uh, uh, the headset about breaking it down. I was like, well, this is what we do. This is how it works. Right. Yeah. Like this is what I've learned and what I'm I'm modeling from all of my great teachers and all of my mentors. And this is how you do it. And I'm doing it well. Right. You were just doing what you were taught. That's right. That's what all the webinars and all the books and all the experts and all all the people (laughs) who mentored me, this is what they told me. This is the way. Right. Yes. Yes. Like why? It feels yuck, but, but I'm good. I'm doing good. Um, and it's for a good cause. So it's okay. Um, and, um, you know, I only know now that really what I was doing was, was poverty tourism. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it took me a while to sort that out in my head, but I knew it was, it was uncomfortable. So I said, you know what? I'm out of here. I got to do something different. So I, you know, wandered around nonprofit world and I ended up in another job and I said, listen, I will do anything for your organization. Name it. I will, you know, I will sweep the floors and take out the recycling bins, whatever you want. Just don't ask me to do the fundraising. Well, guess what I'm doing about three months into the job. I'm, you yeah. know, so, so I'm the new director of development and, oh, you know, same stuff. Same stuff, and I kept not. I kept. No, I kept getting the feeling that it was wrong, and I was trying to do it better. I was trying to be more thoughtful. I was trying to be more inclusive. I was, you know, I was moving the needle in what I thought was the right direction, and it yes. was. It was. I was able to make progress, but I still felt like something's not quite right, and I really need to get out of fundraising. It actually got to the point where I was. I was struggling with my mental health. I mean, I would come home and be like, ooh, I got to take like three showers. I feel so icky. But what yeah. so, um, so I said, listen, you're in good shape. You know, we've raised 75% of the annual goal. We're like six weeks into our, you know, you're good. Yes. You're good. You're good until like you can coast for the whole rest of the year. You guys are fine. I'm going to just, you know, hop on out of here, clean up my desk March 8th. 
2020. Yeah. And I had been interviewing for other positions, thinking I'm going to do yeah. nonprofit work, but do programming, do something else, right? Because I just want out of this. I just want out. And, um, you know, then, gosh, March 10th, the world shut down here in Connecticut. Yeah. And all the all the jobs dried up. Oh, our funding is gone. We're on hold. We're not interviewing. <laughs> and that's really given me a, a lot of space and time to slow down and really deconstruct what my relationship to fundraising has been about and thinking a lot about how it could be different. Um, so we're on a podcast, so you can't see me, but I'm, I have totally gray hair. Mm-hmm. I am totally white. I can, I can see you, so I can tell them who you are. <laughs> I'm a white haired white lady. And, yes. um, you know, I have a scarf for every occasion in my closet and, yes. you know, I have decided that I have two things I need to do. And one is I need to disrupt philanthropy because I have been complicit um, for decades in in making sure that white wealth and white donors are centered and focused and placed on a pedestal. And I I don't want to do that anymore. And the other thing that I have a responsibility to do is to listen, to listen to the voices of the communities of color um, that are often served by nonprofits, but have white leadership, white boards, you know, um, to, to really listen to the communities and listen to people of color who are in leadership positions saying, you know, who can help me understand what are what are better ways of doing this? Because the best practices, air quotes, are who are they best for exactly? They're best for the donor. And and so I'm trying to sort of flip this whole thing on its head by being in conversation with Black, Brown, and Indigenous people who are sure. in the nonprofit sector, sure. learning from them, brainstorming with them using my, what what I know, which is this is what I've done, and it's it's not great. So learn from me and don't do this. And also how can you teach me how to do it a better way? And then to be sort of a, a messenger to white donors to say, you know what, you think you're doing great. And, and sometimes you are, but sometimes you're also causing harm. And so I want to help, um, help donors understand where there are opportunities to rethink their patterns and their expectations so that we can have a a more authentic fundraising model. Okay. Okay. So I've heard that. I've heard that time and time again, and I've heard it from, and I've heard it time and time again from white people. Yes. Yes. And it sounds like to me, like white guilt. And I'll tell you why it sounds like white guilt, because I think part of what we have to own up to and the, one of the first things you said was that you're not an expert. And I think what we have to own up to, to reconcile a lot of what you're wrestling with, and a lot of my listeners have been wrestling with, I mean, a lot of my guests have uh, been wrestling with, is that I don't know that the donor's the damn problem. I think the experts are the problem. I think everything you've said, unless you're going to tell me that those rich white donors 
in Connecticut necessarily wanted you to kowtow to them and treat them like you're a concierge and providing them fancy customer service, in some ways, you were just doing what some guru on a platform at some conference told you to do. And I think at the root of this is is the um, what P, uh, Fieri and, and my other my my guest and if you were r- routinely listening, I talk about this a lot. Fieri, when he's working with the students in uh, in Brazil in the 1950s and 60s, talked about narration sickness. You and I have been told a story that's fundamentally flawed. I don't think our donors want them. T- I don't think they want us kissing their ass. I agree 100%. I agree 100%. I think I, it's all an internal problem. I think we've got a marketing problem. And I think, don't. And if, if anything, I think donor-centered fundraising as a concept has got a marketing problem. I because agree. we've designed it like a product for consumers. And the fundraisers are, quite frankly, the consumers who have bought the product. And it's completely flawed. 100%. You are and if people like and if people like you and me <laughs> in our whiteness, in our complete white privilegedness, mm-hmm. if we would sort of just lean into that and partner with our friends in Seattle and elsewhere, mm-hmm. it's got a marketing problem, and it's not the it's not the don't. I mean, granted, I know, and I'll and I'm up on my soapbox now. I gave you your I gave you your ten minutes, so I'm going to take my five, please. But I know that there's the upper echelon of our donor communities that are complete jerks and they're pricks and they're arrogant and they're white male. And they're all those things that sort of we want to push back against. But I also know that there's 90% of our files that are in these organizations that if we sat down and had lunch with them, you or me, we could persuade them to go in so many different directions. It's not even funny. Am I right? You are absolutely right. In fact, I am in conversation (laughs) with some donors here in my city. You know, I mean, I've been on the phone with, you know, probably three different people this week talking about philanthropy with white people, about how yes. to do it differently. Like, you have a shit ton of money? Listen, here's some ideas I have for you. And is you know what? It, and you know what? Some and they're of it. happy. And they're happy. They're like, first of all, they're like, oh, my God, I just never thought of it that way. I just okay. had no idea. And 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 they're they're in. Becky. Yes. It's the same, Becky. Is the same challenge that of is it a is it a power thing? Do fundraisers just like the black, brown, and marginalized mm-hmm. people that we're advocating for? Do the fundraisers need to wake up and realize that they have power between the people of wealth and the people that need wealth? And if we'll step up and start demonstrating that power that we have with oftentimes who are highly impressionable people, we can totally change the world. Absolutely. I'm here to do it. <laughs> so let's do it. And I don't <laughs> I don't think I don't think I don't think you and I are talking about disrupting philanthropy so much. Is I think we're actually talking this is this is why I, I asked you to inter- when I when you introduced yourself. I think you could raise a hell of a lot of money in a town like you live in for some of the hardest places in your community, and you could actually achieve that level of justice that we're talking about. Am I right? I, you know, I'd like to think so, Jason. That's real. You know, I, I hope, I hope that that could be true. I mean, the interesting thing is, is that there is a balance of, uh, am I the right person to do that? You know, I mean, part of my 
part of the complexity here is is that do you not want to be at the lunch table because well, because you're a white problem. because you're a white woman of privilege do you not want to be at that lunch table well there's two problems for me i mean this is like turning into a therapy session but <laughs> there are two problems for me one is one is is that i have to identify and be honest about what i am getting out of my proximity to wealth and power by acting as that gatekeeper, right? Sure, uh, so sure. I don't own that. And, yeah. and so do I need that power? Do I need that? Or can I share that power with the black and brown fundraisers in my town? Can I just say, hey, I'm going to put you in touch with so-and-so who's already been primed through a conversation with me and you guys build an authentic relationship together that takes me out of it. So that the how, power- how many how many lunch to okay I, I I hear that I hear that and I hear that a lot from individuals just like yourself. But how many lunch table conversations have you had in your community with rich white people and had an African American woman or young man sitting next to you? I have had several. Those are the types of things that I I had a, I had a woman Hana. She's in Southern California, and she was challenging me on some of this thinking because this is the type of stuff that we teach in my seminars. I think what you and I need, people like you and I who have privilege, who have the have all the assets you might say that we have, we need to go shoulder to shoulder with these people. Yes. Because in some ways we do have things to offer the black, brown, marginalized person sitting next to us. Sometimes there's skills that we perhaps have can bring to the table just like they bring to the table. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. I think probably what I offer more than skills is just uh-huh. my it's just my network honestly honestly okay. i mean i think my network is really my most valuable asset i don't think i, think, I have i think i think I, I do think you know how to sit across from that person like a peer yes i mean that is true but I, I think that's a skill is it a skill or is it built in racism or white supremacy is, <laughs> why I mean, is why is why why would you and I being peers why 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 is being peers with when I say peers I'm talking about somebody who sort of lives in the same age group sort of contextual reality we live in a world where you have peer groups it's like middle school I mean you had peer groups right yes. um I I think there's and and I think I've heard this from all all types of fundraisers, that the best fundraising that happens gets done when you're sitting across the table peer to peer. And so whether I'm talking to a African-American woman coaching her in her fundraising skills, or whether I'm talking to a, a white guy, I'm saying to both of them, learn how to sit at that table like a peer. And I think you could be extraordinary at doing that, but it doesn't sound like you want to. You know, I'm, I'm not really, again, you know, I'm going to push back a little bit on this okay. idea of, of like what we, what we believe is, is most effective, right? Like this idea okay. that peer to peer is the most effective tool. I, I'd sort of like to challenge that. Okay. That I, that I, th- I would like for, you know, again, I'm, I'm like, this is really too <laughs> radical for most people, but I would like to live in a world where white wealth can sit at the table with a black and brown indigenous person. Doesn't yes. have to be a lunch table. It sure, could be, sure. It could Wherever. be in, a, in, in the community that they want to have an impact. Yes. Right? And have yes. an authentic 
conversation, even though they are not peers, an authentic connection and an authentic commitment to make change. That's but the you world don't I want to live in. But, but you don't think that I, I get that. And, and I think that's the type of work that we need to be striving for. But I'm, I'm thinking about the role that Becky plays in this. I think Becky's opportunity is to help facilitate and make sure that those conversations are happening. But I'm hearing in between the lines of what you're saying that you don't want to be that facilitator. I think, um, I think I'm struggling with that, Jason. Why? Um, because I'm not really sure that I, again, I don't have expertise. You will never. what What I know is I know what not to do. I'm not, I don't feel like I can sit with somebody and say, here's what you should do. I feel like I want to go to somebody else and say, here's what not to do. What would you do? You're young. You're, yes. And, and also the other thing is, is the reality is, is that the next generation of donors is not me. They're not sure, all white sure. people. So yes, I'm, I'm yes. talking about changing philanthropy for the future generations. I want black and brown fundraisers right now who are, who are in this, in this world to you know, be in conversation with millennial donors and to change the dynamic for their future. And yes, for me to be having conversations with the old white ladies. Yes. And saying <laughs> I think you're holding your I think you're holding your old white lady against you. And I think the thing is, is you're I think in some ways you're trying to work yourself out of a job. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I just I, I <laughs> All right, Listen, you, 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 you added me. I really don't want to do the work. It feels toxic to me. I want to be. Well, I don't know if you're going to dis. Then, then you can't. Then you don't get to hijack the uh, disrupt philanthropy hashtag. Then. Well, mm. you're going to have to do something. Yeah. So I, I feel like I am doing things. I feel like I'm moving. I'm in conversation. I, I read your I read your article. I read it twice. I read your CCF article, the Wait. article that that was written kind of to the donor. Oh, oh yes, yep, yeah. And and write that write that to the fundraising expert. Write that to the damn fundraising expert at the next AFP conference because I don't think that the donor. I have sat with that. I have sat with who I think is the donor that you wrote to time and time again. And I think you, I think, I think you just punch them in a gut, in the gut in such a way where they're not even there. They're like, mm-hmm. look, I, I afforded you 25 minutes of my time. I let mm-hmm. you buy me a cup of coffee. I remember, I remember when I was at the Epilepsy Foundation in Washington, I got off, I, you know, I took the train up to Washington. I mean, up to New York. I got on the northbound train that heads up along the Hudson River. I got off of a train. For 25 minutes, I, I literally was there with that woman for 25 minutes, and I was able to catch the next southbound train. We exchanged only enough conversation for me to ask her for, I think, $25,000. It was so shallow and so consumer-driven in my mind. I sold her the assurance of changing the world for the benefit of children with seizure disorders, mm-hmm. and she gave me $25,000. Uh-huh. And if I even think that she's, if I sort of see her, I can't even remember her name, but if I see her as the donor that you were writing to in that article, I'm thinking, no, we're probably missing the point. It's the expert who told me, it's the expert who told me to go through the process the way that I did. 
Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I think it's both. I think it's both because I think that we, I think we as fundraisers have established what the norms and the expectations are. Yes. But now yeah. they're out there, right? They're yes, out there. Yes, so the, yes. So the donor says, oh, well, wait, I, I gave you this much money. Can't I, can't I weigh in on, you know, who's going to be the next head of school? Uh, can't I have my name on this building? Why don't I get front row seats? You know, we've, we have, yes, the experts have told us. But then yeah. we've established that as the norm, and now our donors expect it. And so I think it's both. I think we, we have to change the narrative with fundraisers first yeah. and say, how are you going to start to shift your conversation and your narrative with your donors so that you can manage expectations? And, you know, one of the things that I said just in my own community Excuse me. You you could have been that. You could. It, it's just as likely. I bet you have people within five square miles of your home that pretty much are the profile of this woman that I was meeting with on the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the. I think in some ways that's what a person like yourself who says I want to disrupt philanthropy have got to reconcile. Um, I think about the two women that started. So I worked for several years here in, in my home, in my local community, at a private school that was deliberately organized for low-income kids, sixty-five percent by by a bylaw in the doc in the founding charter document said sixty-five percent of the kids had to be low-income kids, mm-hmm. and they were giving them the best quality education that you could get in this community. Only the country day kids across town were getting anything similar. And I think part of what I constantly heard around, and, and, and these were two white women who probably, if, if they were in the room with you, would sort of live in a very similar world, right? But at the same time, I think part of what they learned in that journey and where you see that organization today is those two white women have left. There's not nearly as much sort of white saviorism going on in the organization. It's becoming far more true and more holistic and perhaps what you and I would consider sort of community center, you know, the more in line with what our friends in Seattle would advocate for. Um, But I guarantee you those two white women, just like yourself, are still advocating for that organization and doing their best to raise a hell of a lot of money for that organization. And And it doesn't sound to me like you want to do that. But I, but I know you could, and I know you're within five miles of those rich old white ladies. Listen, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. <laughs> but I'm doing it in a. Um... I'm going to get you hired. I'm going to find you. An, <laughs> I'm going to find you an organization that needs Becky on their payroll. Listen, here's here's the, here's the way that it feels really feels right for me. Yeah, because I'm still raising money, but I'm doing it quietly. It's not yeah, my yes. job right now. Yes. It's more of a mission. You know, I'm still planting seeds. I'm going around saying, oh, you know, I know you know who's doing good work in this town. Could you stop giving your money in a putting it in a donor advice fund? Just write out your damn check and go give it to him right Will now. Will you say that to a donor? I have said it. Oh, that that's the, okay, there's disrupting philanthropy back. <clears throat> that's what I'm doing. I, You've got to tell, okay, that, but I don't know if I read that in your CCFR. No, no, no. I haven't. That's a per, that's a that's a little personal <laughs> tell story. That, tell that story. I so I wrote, <laughs> I posted something uh, to my neighborhood uh, yes. on my Facebook page that just yes. talked about donor advised funds. Yes, you know because we have a, a in quotes community foundation here that yes. has a mighty big endowment 
that they are sitting on in this town where the lines, the food lines are around the block at the food pantries, where there is such need in this community. And the foundation has, I mean, everyone, it's just the default. If you have money in this town, you put it in the community foundation. And you just let it grow and grow and grow. And it sits there. And everybody thinks they're doing the right thing. Because that's what we've been told. If you have a lot of money, just give it to the community foundation. They'll take good care of it. But what they're doing is they are just, you know, letting it grow and grow and grow. And, um, you know, so I wrote, you know, there was like something about donor advised funds. Do you have a donor advised fund? If you do, do you really understand what it's doing for you? Do you understand what it's doing for your community? If it's sitting there, it's not doing anything. You know, you already got your tax break. Get it the hell out there to... It's maintaining, it's, main, it's maintaining your sense of control over money that you've already Absolutely. benefited. It's yes, all, yes. yes, just hang, you're just hanging on to your power. Just give it right. up. And right. so after that, after I posted that a couple of days later, a, a former neighbor called me up and she said, Becky, I just read this. Like, I, I just want, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. She said, what do you, what do you mean? She says, you know, I have a donor advice fund. Well, yeah, no shit. I know you have a donor advice fund. I solicited you for, you know, 20 years. I know exactly about your donor advice fund. Um, yes. And I said, yeah, I, you know, I know how much you care about the community. I know what kind of work you're doing, not only as a donor, but as a volunteer. I said, yeah. you are in the community doing the work. I said, stop, stop letting your money sit there. Put it to work. Put it to yes. work now. And yes. she said, I just had no idea. She said, what else could I do? I said, well. There's this mutual aid and that mutual aid and this group that's not a 501c3 because they're not organized to be a 501c3, yes, right. but they are out there every day serving the people in Fairhaven food. So why don't you go get write them a check? And she why was like, okay. And she okay. was like, okay, I just, all right. That's not okay. Every time I read, so I've read your stuff and I've read, I've read, I think I've read every CCF article that's been put on my radar and I read Vu's email every, every, every other week or so. That's the white donor that Vu doesn't talk about. He doesn't talk about the highly impressionable white donor that you just described that basically all you had to do was be totally audacious, totally bold, use your power. And basically you could probably persuade her to do anything you wanted to. He doesn't talk, he doesn't talk about that particular donor. He talks about that donor as if that donor is a monster and that donor is not a monster. That woman is a highly impressionable woman who could, would sit at a coffee table and you could sell her on the ideas of totally doing something that probably is worlds away from her current worldview, things that are completely off her radar, but they need a peer, someone like yourself who they identify with. If you don't sit down with her and have that conversation, quite frankly, it's just scary to her. Well, it's also just uh, just a lack of knowledge. She doesn't even know it's there, right? She doesn't even know these things are happening. Don't even know what a donor advice fund is or how it works. Honestly, I mean, or the community foundation. You know, I mean, a lot of community foundations do great work, but you know, a lot of them are are work like a bank. You know, really, you're putting your money in a bank so that it grows. Well, you know, like people don't don't know what they don't know. And so that's what, when I'm talking about disrupting philanthropy, that's what I'm talking about. I am saying, I'm going to speak what I think is the truth about how things are happening in my little orbit and call it out 
and say, here's an opportunity to think about this differently in a way that can really impact our neighbors. So it's hyper-local. It's hyper-local. I think it could be broadened. I mean, I, I actually reached out to someone in the arts community. I'm very involved in the arts community. And I've been sort of making the rounds in the arts community. And I, and people are afraid. People are like, well, we, you know, if we start doing this stuff, we're going to lose some money. <laughs> we're going to lose our money. And, and my response is, you might actually, you might the first year or two. I said, but in the meantime, I said, right now, people are looking, foundations are ready to give money for the kind of stuff we're talking about, you know, equity and, and all of that. I said, just yes, rely on a foundation. They're, they're, ri- they're ripe for it. Warm up. So just go get your money from foundations for a couple of years. Yes. Take a risk. I said, but let's lock arms together because if everybody in the arts community gets together and says, guess what? We're doing our annual reports different now. Now yeah. we're saying it's not by category. You don't get to have special benefits. We're just going to put you in alphabetical order. Not just you, people who do in-kind donations, people who are our volunteers, people who are ambassadors in the community. It takes all of us together to do this. Here's the annual report. And then if we're all doing it, it'll be the norm. And then we don't have to play these nonsense games about how, oh, you're the silver donor or you're a gold donor. Sorry, okay. you can't come to the cocktail party. Let, let, let's, 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 let's sort of go in a different direction here for a minute. Because this is, some, this is one of the things I'm starting to realize about the first the first half. Are you, are you a person of faith? I don't know. Do you and your husband attend am, church uh, or anything? No, we do not <laughs> you go don't to church. Attend, but you've been to church. You get I church. I get church. I get church. Okay. I consider okay. myself a spiritual person. How okay. about you get Okay, that's good enough. That's good enough. Okay, so I spent the first half of my fundraising career in Judeo-Christian organizations that do not believe the money is theirs to begin with. It's not, and I still subscribe. I, I still attend, you know, a local parish every Sunday. The money's not mine to begin with, and I think in some ways, our friends in in and, and perhaps our friends at CCF know this. But if you look at the way that Christian stewardship is taught in the traditional evangelical church, it's not taught a whole lot different than what our CCF friends are trying to teach, because ultimately. It's not my money to give away anyway, and it's not really mine to hoard control, you know, um, and the pleasure of giving it is not some, and the other, the other thing, it, the pleasure of giving it is not supposed to be pleasure that I experience here on earth. It's supposed to be, you know, pleasure that I experience later in life, you know, in an afterlife. Um, and I think if we really thought about it, and this is the critique in my forthcoming book, Donor-centered fundraising as we currently understand it, and if you take this all the way back to some of the places in our conversation thus far, it basically it's behaving like consumer behavior. It's, it's, it's based on the notion that fundraising, the donor and the fundraiser are one and the same in the consumer. And if you take fundraising as a practice back to its history, mid-century, you know, 20th century, you're talking about advertising, marketing, and PR. Right. How about we just... Transactional. Un- Right. How about we just unplug all that mm-hmm. and just start treating fundraising like a more human-centered, more interdisciplinary, more, you know, I mean, it's 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 just like me. It's just like you giving me an hour of your time right here. You're giving me your time instead of you giving me your money. I, I think I think there's so much a human-centeredness to all this. I think if we really want to disrupt it. We just have to change the way we do it. And I just don't, I honestly do not think that the donors are really the problem. I think it's us. I think, I think it's, 
again, I think that there is a lot of um, a lot of white saviorism in sure in the and and people who are white saviors um, for the but you could be a white. You, you, you and I fit the bill. I mean, you and I fit the bill. And, oh, and if yeah. we organized, if we organize, think about it. If you and I organized another private school, like my my the colleagues I worked with did, we could organize a private school. We could be typical white saviors, and we would expect a whole line of rich, wealthy white people that we can influence to sort of follow us in there. But the donors are just following us. I don't think the donors took the lead. The, the donors are out there working in the marketplace, making the big bucks. They're not changing. The, they're not trying. You and I are the ones that think we can change the world, not the donors. Correct. And I think that, but I think that that begs the question, what is their motivation? Whose motivation? The donor's motivation. What is their motivation? It, it, well, I like to go. I like to go back to the. I like to go back to what I was taught in the church and think of it like a spiritual journey and say that from from, from if I approach charitable giving in much the way that the church taught me to approach it, I'm taking, I'm ushering them or guiding them or discipling them on a spiritual journey that's not unlike any other t- sort of mentoring sort of relationship that constantly constantly requires them to detach. And un, and not have strings attached, and not put their names on. There's nothing, for example, in a biblical definition of stewardship that would put your name on a side of a building. Not none, nothing, right. nothing. I right. mean, I mean, that's completely sec. That's completely secular. That's completely, you know, that's completely consumerism in my mind. That's not. Um, yeah, that's that's totally- not philanthropy's fault. Uh, right. So I guess, but I guess the the question, like this idea that. Um, you know, that people need to be shepherded or mentored. Um, you, you know, I'm not. I'm not talking now. I'm not talking about the fundraiser now. No, you're, I'm talking not, about I'm, the, you're talking about the donors. I'm talking about that, that rich white lady down the street from you. I'm talking about shepherding her to go and give her money in much more in, with no strings attached Mm-hmm. completely release it to an organization that she doesn't identify com- at all, doesn't even know they exist and walks away with it feeling like, I mean, that, that it, you want to talk about spiritual transformation, convince, convince one of your neighbors to give a, a hundred thousand dollars to an organization for whom they do not identify with. And right. you, and, and they'll experience a life transformation they've never experienced. But is so I guess I guess one of the things that that I'm trying to sort of frame that that helps me in my whiteness yeah. get, get comfortable <laughs> get comfortable with this idea is to not frame it as um, charity that really it's partnership for change sure. that, there's, that there's that it's that it's equally beneficial it, right it, I, that it's not it, a, is it's it, not that it's not just a spiritual, like I'm not creating something that that is enabling somebody to feel good. I'm I'm enabling somebody to be a part of making change. Now that's really subtle. That's a very subtle. Nobody nobody's gonna be able to nobody's gonna be able to work towards justice if you're not willing to if you're not willing to, somebody has to be willing to. Somebody has to be willing to sit down with that woman who can write a six-figure check. And have a conversation with her in a very meaningful way if you're ever going to get her to not give to charity. Because charity is highly marketable. Charity, That's right. The way, 
Char- charity can be neatly packaged. I mean, it's the reason why we give, you know, $25 a month to, you know, to, to animal aid organizations yes. it's because the kitten is cute right. and you can make children cute. Like the child, the, the yes. refugee child you started with. If we want the, the hardest fundraising we can do, Becky is the fundraising that's oriented towards justice, Absolutely. but it's not going to get done in a direct mail appeal. Never. It's not going to, it's not. No, never. And in fact, I think that's part of the reason why my approach to this has been local, because I think it has to come from authentic relationship. It has to come from trust. It has to come from, um, you know, just like being in, in a relationship with a person where you're willing to go to a place that's a little uncomfortable and say the hard things yes. and, and take a risk. And, you know, you can't do that when I'm, you know, if I don't have a relationship with them already. Um, and so. Right. Do you have to take a risk? Right. Okay. I mean, so, so here's. Do so, we have to take a risk? Do we as fundraisers have to take a risk on being told no? Because if you oh, think about the way that most. Right. But, but if you think. Right. I, I know it's an of course. But if you think about the way that most fundraising is getting designed these days and increasingly getting designed these ways, you talk about this highly intrusive well screening information, for example, the way that we use predictive and, you know, predictive analytics and all that other bullshit. If you think about what that's doing, we're trying to eliminate the possibility of being told no. But what we're also doing is we're also in almost in we're almost guaranteeing ourselves that we're only going to be talking to the donors for whom we can currently identify with, because the more homogeneous the population, the more predictable it is. So if I want the donor, if I want the donor to not look like you or me, I'm not going to be able to predict the outcome as easily. That maybe I, Becky, I think, I think you just (laughs) got to get over your whiteness and you, you, and I've got to, you and I got to jump up on platforms. You and I are so much on the same page and we've got to, we've got to wear, here's the benefit I think I've got over you right now, Becky. I'm 265 episodes in on this thing. And I've been listening to sort of this rumbling tension for 265 Mm Mm -hmm. podcast conversations Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm hearing sort of both sides of this debate as well as any number of other debates. And I think we've got a generation of people like yourself who, if you just stepped into this in a remarkably amazing sort of way and stopped pointing fingers at that darn rich white lady down the street, she's not your problem. No, in fact, I hope she's going to be my partner. She's going to be something. But but, but here's the here's the thing that is is liberating for me is yeah. that because I am not actually doing the work, it is safe for me to have these conversations. I am not beholden to any of these donors. Who the hell wants it to be safe? Well, I, I, what, I mean, if if we had a if if we had another one of our if we had a third guest on here and she ta- and it was a woman and she's a woman of color or she's mm-hmm. queer or something like that she w- she'd probably tell you who the hell gets safe anymore. Well, that's fair. That is fair. I will why take do you, that why do you why do you and me deserve safety? We do I not. Mean, we do I, not. I can look at you. I can look at the room behind you. I know how much safety you've got built around you. Plenty. Plenty. Yeah. So let's just get daring. Well, so I feel like I feel like I have uh, if I was working for an organization right now, 
Yes. I would not be able to say what I just said on air about my community foundation. I am liberated to say, to call, to call bullshit when I hear bullshit in yeah, a way that yeah. people who are in the work, who are frontline fundraisers in fundraisers in my city cannot say because they're all dependent upon these. Because they're all on somebody's payroll. They're all right. on somebody's payroll. And so that's really the motivation for me to stay on the outside, on the periphery, because I don't have, because I can say the things that other people are not free to say right now. So what if we, so what if we rallied together and I'm not kidding about this because I had a guest on here. I had a white guy on this podcast talking to me about almost the same thing about three or four weeks ago. What if we rallied together 12, 12, 15 of your top fundraisers in your community? Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. And we said, don't be on anybody's payroll. Let's figure out the let's figure out the economics of how this works. Yeah. Perhaps behave like brokers or something. But is the status quo sort of built into the way that we've designed our roles? As long as you, Becky, are on the payroll of a liberal arts college or a private school or something, you're yeah. pretty much obligated and honorably obligated. It's in your job description mm -hmm. to raise money for that organization in a particular way. But I think what we as fundraisers need to realize is, is that perhaps we could be far more world-changing. Becky, you and I and about six of us could raise a hell of a lot of money and we don't have to really be on anybody's payroll. And our mortgages would get paid just as quickly as they're getting paid now. And I think you and I know that. And we could give it to some of these causes that our friends in Seattle and everybody would, would want us to give it to. But that's really changing us. That's not changing that's right. the donor. That's right. That's right. But I, I, I do think there is, a, there is some, you know, we have to sort of rethink the language. We have to rethink our headsets. You know, we we just it's been so ingrained. I mean, we've been right. we're like robots, you know. Right. I mean I mean sometimes I we're say, consumers. We're well, we're consumers just like everybody else. Right. I mean people, you know, I talk to people who are you know, black and brown fundraisers who are like, uh-uh, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Like that'll never work, or that's a crazy idea, or that's so radical, or no way am I taking that chance. And and so um you know, they need board support. They need their EDs to support yeah, them yeah, because, yeah. because everybody's, you know, everybody's got their targets and they've got their goals and they got to meet their numbers and they've, they've got their metrics and they're on, you know, they're on the hook for all this shit. And if they yes. don't deliver, if they say, no, I want to live into my values. I want to like, I want to be grounded in authentic relationships and that's going to take more time. Uh, you know, you're going to get pushback. And There's so, a, um, so I think I don't think it's just the fundraisers. I think it's really I think it's an ecosystem. There's a um, my listeners are, are routinely here. Routinely hear me talking about Jost. So Jost, James Jost is a professor at NYU, and he's been writing about this theory called systems justification theory. And systems justification theory basically makes the case that those who are the most negatively impacted by a system are also the people who are the most inclined to define defend it. So the people who will exist in the system, even though they're the most harmed by it also will dig in their heels the most and say the system has to stay the way it is. And I think what that says to me, and he's not talking about fundraisers, he's talking about marginalized people and all sorts, all the areas that you and I would want, you know, would, would sort of direct his attention to, or would want his attention to. But I think we've got fundraisers running around the country existing in a system 
for which marginalizes the role that we can play. Absolutely. We are. I mean, you, 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 you think about, you think about them, you're thinking because of who you are in the world and your contextual sort of arrangement and where you live in the world and so forth. You're thinking about the black, brown and marginalized people that you think need to be perhaps at that table other than you. But I think in some ways you also are existing in a fundraising system that has marginalized you. And so if we, if we, if we stop, if we can convince you and I not to see ourselves in these, I had a young woman on the podcast back before the holidays call her work as a fundraiser, as a concierge. And I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, no way. Yeah. I, I, mean, will res- I will respect these people. I will negotiate the most extraordinary gifts, but I sure as hell am not somebody's custom- glorified customer service person. Yeah, I mean, it, it is demoralizing. It can feel very demoralizing. Uh, I think a lot of us have been groomed. I mean, it feels a little like we've been groomed to behave this way. And I think, and I do think for women That's in particular, I, yes. think, I think for women in particular, there, you know, we get accolades for being helpers and for being responsive yes. and for having right. emotional intelligence, you know, and being able to anticipate somebody's needs and and fulfill them. You know, right. that's that's part of, you know, what we have been groomed to to do as women. And yet I, we feel gross about it. I, I think it's I, I I think there's injustices that are built into our society that fundraising and philanthropy aren't necessarily well positioned to fix. I think there's societal injustices that we need to look back way in history. Oh yeah. and, And I don't think fundraising and philanthropy need to necessarily be the front runners in changing that. But I think what fundraising can change and where we are particularly suited to sort of play the roles that we're playing is to, I think the work does need to be more advocacy, more more um, justice oriented, because ultimately we and this is what I learned in grad school in one of my courses was the idea that if if we saw ourselves as advocating for the way that public policy, for example, decisions that are being made, for example, in Washington. um, But a lot of us don't like to do that because that's not easy fundraising. It's. It's not charity fundraising. You know, it's it's far more compelling for me to feed a homeless person downtown for six bucks or something or 60 cents or whatever it is than it is for me to raise $60,000 to push an initiative mm-hmm. that's ultimately going to change the underlying system that, with a decision that's being made in Congress right now. Or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Man, we could probably continuously exhaust ourselves, but we've done this for about 50 minutes. So, Becky, um, you got to quit holding yourself against yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just going to take a lot more therapy, Jason. It's just going to take a lot more therapy. But in the meantime, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And um, Will you write that article to that expert for me? Yes, I will. I will write, write that article okay. and let me, let me push that article. I've got 25,000 people on LinkedIn. All I right. guarantee I will push that article to the moon. All fact. right. It's on my to-do list. <laughs> is it really? Or yeah. Not, no, it is. Okay. It is. I have, I have an, a list of things that I've got to, got to write. And because so- that's, that's one of the first things you said when you introduced yourself is you said, I'm not an expert and I don't like to see myself as an expert either. I like to see myself as a provocateur who's making people think. 
And I get a, I get the impression that's probably a lot of what you're trying to do, too. I think we're aligned here. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Becky, if somebody's listening to our conversation today and they want to reach out to you, um, probably give you a pat on the back for putting up with me for 45 minutes. Um, how would you suggest that they do that? Probably the best way is to just connect with me on LinkedIn. Look for Rebecca Paw, P-A-U-G-H. And almost everybody who reaches out to me, I immediately say, let's hop on Zoom and have an authentic relationship because that's how I want to build, you know, that's how I want to be in the world. I don't want to have connections on LinkedIn that aren't real people. I want to know somebody. So that's, so just know that if you, if you actually reach out to me, I'm going to really follow up. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Becky. It has certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. It has been great to chat with you. Take good care. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.